Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 81, Building Lab Server Templates. This is a topic me and Jay have tried to figure out how to word because it's going to cover a few different things. And well, we're just going to throw it all in this episode because I think the question comes up a lot about, you know, how do you get your template set up? How do you get, you know, some of those, you know, simple to deploy templates because you want to play with something. And there's a couple of different methodologies we're going to talk about and not one of them is right. It's about which one is right for you. That's, that's what a lot of this home lab stuff we want to remind people of. You can all have your opinions of the way you want to do it, but the way you're most comfortable doing it, because that's what I kept replying to someone in my own forums, do it the way you're most comfortable with. Cause they, they didn't like my method. And I said, that's fine. You don't have to, you asked me what it was. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Simple enough. Before we jump into this, let's talk about a company that has plenty of templates to play with. As a matter of fact, about how many different templates do you say are in Linode's store there, Jay? I have never counted. It's just this list I scroll through until I find what I want. They have a lot of stuff out there. A lot of great stuff. So sponsor of today's show is Linode, and they have templating figured out. It's actually something pretty cool that uh, maybe one of these times, or have you done a video on that uh, directly with some of the Linode templates, Jay? Yeah, I've done so many videos with with them, like either on their channel or on my own. It's like I, I'm losing count at this point. So <laughs> I think I covered it, um, but sometimes it gets a little bur you know, blurry between my channel and theirs. Yeah. So there's a lot you can do with all these templates. We thank them for being a sponsor. It is a great place to run any of the different things we've talked about here. Well, most all the things we talked about here on Home Lab. There's a few exceptions. You don't run your hypervisor inside Linode. They have one they provide for you. But many of the projects you talked about, if you need to host it somewhere, Linode is a great place to host it. We have an offer code in the description down below. Thanks, Linode, for being a sponsor. And let's talk about some templates now. Yeah, I wanted to start with... Um... So basically, I'm trying to think of the best place to start. And I'm thinking the best place to start is the whole idea of not having a template or image just so I could kind of address that because I know that yeah. mindset does exist. So what I mean in particular, I'm not talking about people preferring to, you know, set up everything over and over again manually, because let's be honest, that that's just a waste of time. Right. But what some people do and some, you know, cloud providers prefer is the concept of user data, which I don't really know where that term came from, I, I guess I could Google it, but either way, I'm not gonna agree with it because the idea is that a, a user, like user data is run when a instance is created in a cloud environment, whether it, it's OpenStack, you know, you're running your own or it's AWS, uh, a number of others. The idea is you just take a vanilla, unchanged, Ubuntu, Debian, CentOS image, whatever it is, and you apply user data to it, which, you know, would just have bash commands inside maybe something like sudo apt install dash y apache 2 if you want apache to be you know straight out of the gate as soon as you create that uh, particular instance so i mean there's still an image right because the cloud provider has the image you're just using theirs and then you know using a script to install packages maybe even bootstrap your automation service i just want to acknowledge that that exists um and, and one of the reasons why that some people might like this idea. They don't have to maintain an image themselves. They just, you know, cause the instance to get bootstrapped from the user data with whatever command you would normally do. If you have like 10 commands, you might just paste them in there one after another. Maybe you'll you'll pull in an Ansible script or something. So I just want to acknowledge that. And, you know, the case can be made for no images at all, but I don't think there's any right way or wrong way. Just like you mentioned, it's whatever works best for you. Yeah, because a, a lot of simplicity I try to do is I have a lot of 
just a bunch of different variations I leave running that I all just designate the word template to them. There's not really anything special I've done other than I've done all the things. I got my SSH keys in them and things like that. And I have them running unattended upgrades and then I stop them, fork them, play with the thing I wanted to play with, destroy them. Or sometimes I just take the uh, template itself, snapshot it, try something. And if it's not something I want permanently added to that template, I just hit revert uh, back into snapshot to do it. There's, yep. it, It's all about speed at which I want to get something done or try a new thing. That's why I tell people, you know, once you've come up with a secure methodology and a good workflow, it comes down to what you're comfortable doing and you know, there's things I wanted to test. Like I wrote a MinIO installer. So I kept reverting the same template back over and over again until the installer worked because that's the fastest way to do it. Because I was like, oh, the installer failed on this part here. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, going forward from here, because I just wanted to get that mention out of the way, because that's, again, user data is more cloud specific. Again, though, you can run OpenStack on your home lab and have user data and cloud in it can use user data. I'll talk about cloud in it later. Uh, but here on out, I'm going to use the term template interchangeably. I don't care if you're using your virtual machine provider. I don't care if it's, you know, VMware, Proxmox, or physical disk images. Maybe you're going to use something like Clonezilla to take an image of the hard drive. No matter what kind of hardware it is, whether it even is hardware, the goal with uh, templates, again, interchangeable. I know it could be an image if it's, um, you know, physical. The goal is to have something to start from that lowers the amount of time that you're going to spend getting the instance set up for its actual purpose in life. Maybe you want some packages installed on everything. And you just want those packages, you know, always there right out of the box. Maybe there could be some config files that you prefer. You want to make sure those are present. So there could be all kinds of different things that you might want to do. And in the enterprise, there's going to be the, I believe it's CISA, right? Because we had this conversation. Yeah. I can, I can re sometimes CISA. remember it. CISA. They have a hardening image, hardening Hardening guidelines. guides. Document. If you type in CISA yep. hardening guides, this is something nice. And I'm, they've actually come a long way. We always think of uh, yep. the government. I think the first joke Jay made, and I, I laugh because he's like, oh, do they work in Internet Explorer? Because the yeah, government's right. traditionally a little behind when it comes to technology, but CISA has actually improved a lot over the years. And, yep. um, you know, they have good, really solid hardening guides and standards by which you can follow. And they're just good security guides and security practices are setting things up. Exactly. So, and that kind of brings up another point too, like how deep into this rabbit hole do you want to go? Now you could literally have everything you could possibly ever want or need in one image, but that's going to take a very long time. And then if you start getting into security, security is a bottomless black hole. I mean, there's just no limit. I mean, you could go like, there's always going to be someone else that can outsmart you because security is security. So you're never going to have hundred percent perfect security, but there might be some things that you might want to make sure are there from a security standpoint. Companies go a lot further. A lot of them, especially if they're, you know, have some kind of business certification um, for compliance or something like that, they might have to follow the CISA image guidelines. Now, Home Lab, we don't even have to follow that at all. We could just install our updates. If, you know, something bad does happen, hopefully our automation and backups will, uh, whoops, I just dropped a bunch of stuff behind my feet. Anyway, <laughs> hopefully um, everything is just going to carry you through with your, between your backups and your automation scripts to get everything back and running. Um, but again, it's probably a good idea to have some security in there. I'm not recommending that, you know, you do everything in that list of guidelines because it's huge. 
you can explore it and and look at that. I just wanted to acknowledge that it does exist if that's something that you're interested in, especially if your home lab was created for the purposes of getting a security certification. I know at least some people are, you know, trying to get a certification of something, and that might might be why they have a home lab because they want to work with real, you know, equipment. So you might actually follow that all the way if you want to follow the security track. But either way, it's probably outside the scope, I would say at least 75% of the audience, if I had to guess. But I do want to make everyone aware of that. We'll have links in the show notes um, for that. And then from here, we can actually go even, you know, more into detail and more specific to our topic. Absolutely. Which requires some hydration. Should we just get the Windows one out of the way real quick? Yeah, because I do want to, um, you know, at least address that because, you know, we were kind of talking and I do agree there's going to be a smaller percentage that uh, of people that want a Windows image for deployment because more often than not, you have that Windows VM for a specific purpose. Maybe there's this app that you need to run and you might only turn on this VM because, I don't know, maybe it's a Windows XP VM and you have this this thing that configures another thing. It's very common legacy stuff. Um, so you're probably not likely to, to want a Windows image. Maybe just taking a backup of your VM is good enough. But if you do, you know, spin up Windows images or Windows instances, maybe you're also following the Microsoft track and the Linux track. I mean, who knows what what's running in anyone's home lab? Um, as much as I know the industry has moved away from it, I still use SysPrep anytime I create a Windows image, which is very rare. But you know, Microsoft has their own um, imaging system. I don't remember what it's called now. Windows I know deployment it services. What's that? Windows deployment services. Okay, so it did change its name. I'm trying to remember what it, what I knew it as, like way back in 2008. But they have their own thing, and you could a- absolutely follow that and learn it. But for me, SysPrep works. It generalizes the image enough, and or the in- installation enough, and then you could just use that as your base. The problem with SysPrep, and I, it really annoys me, you have three times that you could do it. So on the third SysPrep, you can't SysPrep that installation again. You have to pave and reload it. So of course, as home lab people, we're going to run that reference Windows VM in a VM. We're going to snapshot before we SysPrep. So after we create our image, you know, just shut it down and take an image of it then we're going to revert the snapshot so we have infinite retries. It's very, very, very easy to work around Microsoft's requirements, so much so that I think they should probably just patch that requirement out because it's pretty much useless. I think any first-year person working with Windows deployment knows to just probably use a snapshot and circumvent that requirement but, or, or that limitation. But anyway, I wanted to address that. Um, I think people that are deep into the Microsoft world will probably be like red faced right now. Like you're still using SysPrep, you should be using their service. I know, I know, but SysPrep does work well when you create images enough for home lab people and going any deeper is probably only a good idea for people that are serious about the Microsoft side. But again, just something to acknowledge that it does exist. That's a thing you can still use. Yep. And if you, if you Google windows setup automation, there's some different guides for it. Um, we, you know, as a company, the business side of me, we don't use that as much. And the reason why is a lot of times it's more part of their domain deployment that we're doing. So we'll have something more along those lines to maybe scripts that uh, we deploy that push them to a certain setting 
on theirs. So there's definitely a lot you can do. Uh, what is that? It's called the Windows Autopilot system as well for when you're joining it to a domains. There's like they built some automation, but it's all licensed. It's not it's not that you can't build mm -hmm. a lot of this with some eval licenses in your home lab. Um, but I don't know. Let us know. And if some, someone gives some feedback yeah. on this. We can yeah. bring guests in that's an aut that is an expert at this um, if there's enough interest. Right. I don't know that there's enough interest in this. And I also I don't know how good it would be as a podcast um, other than talking about it. <laughs> you know, exactly. it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's a little off. We're going to most of this. I figured that's the window stuff we want to get out of the way that we know there's some that exist. And obviously part of the problem is there's several different ways to do it in Windows because there's different options they have. So we're going to focus a little more on some of the Linux stuff. Yeah, and one last thing about Windows. I think sysprep is also useful, especially when I get the question, how do I move this Windows installation from A to B? And A could be a physical machine, B could be a virtual machine solution, or they could both be virtual machine solutions um, in either direction. And in that case, you know, you, in my opinion, you, you would back up, you know, take an image of the unchanged Windows installation, then sysprep it because sysprep can fail. And even if it fails, it still counts as an attempt. That's one of the biggest annoyances there. Yeah. So yeah, even though it's not your fault, right? You're doing everything you're supposed to do. And maybe there's a you know something in the installation that doesn't generalize well. Um, but anyway, you, you create a backup of that. And then you can sysprep it, take another image of it. I know this is the long way of doing it, but it's more accurate. Then that sysprepped image, you could then restore that onto B, whatever the target is, have a greater chance, and I say chance because it's Windows, but you have a greater chance of having that restored properly. And then the only thing you have to figure out is the drivers, because of course the drivers will be different. But if you use Windows, you already know how to deal with that. So that could be another use case for sysprep when you're just you know moving from one place to another, which uh, that question does come up. Now we're going to get into the you know the main course here now. And part of this is going to include Cloudinit, which, you know, I used to say that Linux is a lot simpler when it comes to, uh, when compared to Windows deployment and how, you know, you're supposed to do it on Windows with the preferred tools on Windows. I would always argue that Linux is easier. Nowadays, it's been so much more overcomplicated that it's like, um, I can't make that argument anymore, especially with Cloudinit, because now it's like, Congratulations, Linux community. We have officially matched Microsoft in complexity. in complexity and difficulty. <laughs> um, but I'll get to cloud in it. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So again, when it comes to templates, interchangeable, the idea is to have certain things set up. You don't want to go overboard, but just have, you know, some of the things that are more tedious, you may as well just put it in, in the image. Now, in a uh, when it comes to Linux, the you know, the, the story is changing a bit with how you do this. And it also depends on the distribution too, because some are more easier than others. I do have a feeling that the added complexity is going to, um, you know, make its way to other distributions. I primarily use Ubuntu server, even though, you know, I complain a little bit, I still like it a lot. And that's still what I use, but even they have made some things a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. But anyway, the first goal when you create an image is to generalize it. Even on Linux, you, you have to do that. Um, in the past, it was pretty much just the SSH host keys. Everything else was fine. That was the only thing you had to do. And Raspberry Pi OS, and I covered this in one of my videos, they have a systemd script that um, is enabled in the image. 
And when you, you know, create a flash drive or, you know, SD card from the Raspberry Pi OS image, the first thing it's going to do is generate new SSH host keys. If the SSH host keys are the same in your image or, you know, actually in your image, then every instance you create from your, from your image, you're going to have the same SSH host keys. If you go into the Etsy SSH directory and list the storage there, you'll find a bunch of files that have host in the name. Those are your host keys. And those need to be different. If they're not different, then you're going to get this annoying error message. Um, there's there's something wrong here. I forgot what the verbiage is when you SSH. Um, it actually cancels your SSH attempt and tells you that there could be something going on because it's checking for a man in the middle attack. The SSH host they're keys are the different. same keys that you previously they're the same, right. They're, they're the same on each instance, but the, the, the IP is what's different or the host name is what's different, which kind of confuses the whole system. So it's better not to have those in there, but they won't regenerate themselves. You have to have something there to do that for you, which that system D script, and we'll link to it in the show notes, is going to um, take care of that for you. That's the easy mode version. If you just want the you know stupid, simple version, just copy that into the appropriate directory and enable it and take your image. And then you'll basically make sure that no instance created from that image will have the same host keys. And that's the first thing. And it used to be the only thing that you had to worry about. But now there's a little bit more. I threw the commands in the chat as well. It's it's just a matter of like Jay said, it's yeah. you delete everything under Etsy SSH, SSH underscore host uh, underscore asterisk. You'll get rid of all those. Then you just do a depackage reconfigure, open SSH um, server, and that'll rebuild it. When you do the depackage reconfigure, it goes, hey, look, you said reconfigure, but I can't find any host keys. So it just generates them. And then you restart right. SSH and it uh, implements them, or you can reboot the system. Uh, both of those options work. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I mentioned that that used to be the only thing you have to do. In some distributions, that's still going to be the case. But one time, famously, and I think this is probably a recurring thread for me, when I encounter a very frustrating problem that just annoys me to no end, and it just takes me a while to figure out, um, you guys see the end result of that. I'll just make a video and I'll say, yep, yeah, here's how you do it. You do this, you do this, and you do that. And you know, I, I'm sure I sound very confident. And of course, I am because I've usually rehearsed like 10 different times before I even hit the record button. But what you're not seeing is the frustration that went into discovering what it is to tell you guys to do. And one example of this, and this is getting into the thing that's kind of different now, is the Etsy machine ID, which is in Ubuntu. And I think it's going to be another distribution. So I think everyone that understands DHCP knows that the way that it works is a new instance comes online, it hits the network. If it's in with or within reach of a DHCP server, it's going to ask for an IP address. If one's available, it's going to get one. And it's going to present its MAC address as its identifier to that DHCP server. Now, for one reason or another, I'm not going to get into the reasoning here. The Etsy machine ID is now a factor in the process of getting an IP address. So what happened to me is I created this image. I was pretty happy with it. I thought I had some pretty cool defaults in there. But I noticed that my SSH connection would keep dropping. I'm like, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm like, um, What's going on here? But then I noticed another instance has the same IP address. I started creating more uh, VM instances from that template, and they also got the same IP address. And it was then that I realized that the MAC address was not the factor. I made sure it's different on each of the instances. And it was, uh, especially in Proxmox. It knows to randomly generate a uh, MAC address. So you don't have to worry about that. And then it was when I discovered the Etsy machine ID and it, now if that's in the image, 
that's going to be a problem. And you're going to have to clear that out. Now, you can't delete the file. And that's interesting because most things in Linux, if you delete a file, it'll they probably just get, re yeah, just get re recreated for you, which is what you might assume would happen. If you um, delete this file, it just it won't be there. And strange things will happen. But if you empty out the file, literally truncate-s0 Etsy machine ID, just empty out the contents, then when the machine boots the next time, it's going to say, oh, there's supposed to be a machine ID here. There isn't. So I'm going to randomly generate one and put it there. That's basically what systemd is doing nowadays. And you also have another file. And I know people are probably driving and they probably you know won't remember any of this uh, when it comes to paths. <laughs> but varlib dbus machine ID is a duplicate of Etsy machine ID. In most Ubuntu server installations, one has priority over the other. But what you basically do is delete the varlib dbus machine ID. And this is in a video of mine, if you're curious. And you just symlink that to Etsy machine ID. So you only have that one file, empty that out. Next time it boots, you get a new machine ID. Except now you won't. It'll still be the same. How is it going to be the same? Well, the SMBIOS serial is the machine ID. And that's actually kind of hard-coded into the VM or the instance. So, But that's not going to be a factor, though. I just bring that up. If you're testing this and it keeps getting the same machine ID, that's why. As long as you create the image or template with Etsy machine ID empty and varlib dbus machine ID, you know, similar to that, then any new instance you create will have a different SMBIOS and get a different Etsy machine ID. But I mention this because it's a very common question. Why are all of my VMs getting the same IP address? And before we would um, immediately blame uh, the MAC address, we would assume that that's probably the same in every instance. That was something we used to run into. That's largely solved now, but the actual truth of the matter is now we have the Etsy machine ID to contend with. And my big issue with this is that it's not like Ubuntu made a blog post, at least none that I'm aware of, telling everyone, by the way, this is happening. If you don't take this into account, you might have a situation where you have the same IP address. No, it's just a bunch of people that encountered this were scratching their heads, wondering why it's happening, and figuring it out independently rather than a, you know the company coming out and telling everyone what they're doing. And then, of course, I created a blog post about this a long time ago. It got pretty popular because you know a lot of people are running into this. But it's yet another thing we have to take into consideration. So now we have two things that we want to make sure are not in the image. The machine well, ID and the host keys. And let's validate something here real quick, Jake. Someone uh, in the comments here had something I didn't know, and maybe you didn't know either. In NetPlan, okay. if you add DHCP-identifier colon MAC under DHCP options, then it will go by your MAC address instead. Yeah, I did know about that. Um, okay. I'm a little cautious about circumventing the design of the distribution because I don't know how much or if anything they've built around the machine ID because there's always more, especially when it comes to systemd. So although that's 100% valid and 100% true, I caution again against going against their uh, design for the distribution because again, there could be more to the story than that. So, but then again, I mean, we're home labbers. Let's just play around with it and see what happens, right? We could just yeah. uh, discover for ourselves what it does. Because obviously the default behavior is to create that machine ID, but, you know, without a uh, better explainer as to why. And by the way, if someone knows the answer why, or you happen to be the person that developed that, you would like to email the show. 
have at it. You know, can you fill out our contact form. Uh, send us an email, home, homelab2022 at uh, thehomelabshow.com. <laughs> right. And I feel like I knew the reason at one point, but maybe I was too irritated at that point to uh, soak that in. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a security thing because I know a lot of uh, hardware manufacturers that, you know, ship phones or something are, we're, we're catching on to the fact that people walk into a store and it's following their Mac address as their phone is reaching out, looking for Wi-Fi access points to track them and their spending habits and where they're, where they're going and things like that. But then again, if the machine ID is the same on that device all the time, then you'd argue there's no security benefit there. So yeah, there's that. Yeah. Um, um, also, I just said yeah. the um, name wrong. Our email is the uh, feedback 2022 at the show. So if you want to email us uh, questions, comments, concerns, that's uh, where that goes. Feedback 2022. Yep. Uh, that one's we're going to keep that one valid. And of course, we're going to be creating one for 2023. We just want to know if a spammer gets a hold of it. So we're putting years on that. We we should we said it before the end of the show, so we're doing better. We didn't say it at the beginning. It's got <laughs> I got to yep. put that in our notes. <laughs> now, at this point, we're getting into Cloudinit territory, and yes. Cloudinit is one of those things that I think is absolutely worthwhile to learn. I've even done a video about it, but that yeah, doesn't I mean I'm that an in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't mean that I'm an expert though. Um, anytime I create a video. It's I'm teaching everyone at the level I'm currently at. So I usually just, you know, as my knowledge grows, I'll, I'll create more videos around it. And I've had a lot of time to um, go deeper into Cloudinit lately than I've ever done before. Now, Cloudinit, for those of you that aren't aware, is primarily designed for cloud providers, but it's not just for them. We can use it too. And you could use it on, you know, metal. Like if you're installing a Linux distribution on a, on a physical piece of hardware, Cloudinit is basically a way of automating first run tasks or things that should happen when a machine comes online. And one of the things that Cloudinit can do, and I believe it does by default, is it will generalize your uh, SSH host keys. So if you know how to trigger Cloudinit to run, basically you trigger it to run in the reference instance, shut it down, create an image. And then when you boot up uh, or create a new instance from that image, the goal could then be getting Cloudinit to run for the for that very first time. Now, the problem with Cloudinit is useful as it is, and there's all kinds of automations that uh, you could add in there from installing packages, creating users, whatever you want the case to be when you bring up a new instance. The documentation is good-ish at times and lacking other times, and the complexity is a little frustrating. And I. I think the issue here and, and why that is, is because Cloudinit seems like a secret sauce that cloud providers use, and it was developed for them primarily. So, you know, someone who has created their own company and runs servers that are creating hundreds of VMs a minute, you know, I think that they know their way around Cloudinit fairly well. You yeah. could probably argue that they don't really need the documentation, but that's not an excuse not to have documentation. <laughs> you know, I think other people need documentation. Other people want to learn it. But sometimes Cloudinit is just kind of off on an island and a lot of people don't understand how it works. And to make matters worse, sometimes distributions change it up a little bit and add some customizations to it, especially Ubuntu, that make it work differently than the documentation. So even if the documentation was up to date, you might still run into things. But Cloudinit is very useful. But I also understand if someone made the decision that 
you know, it's not for me. I'm just going to add that system D script to generalize the SSH host keys and just, there, there's nothing wrong with that. If, if that solution works for you, it's valid. Just do that. If you have interest in cloud in it, absolutely learn it, especially if you plan on getting into OpenStack or maybe at work, you plan on getting into managing cloud stuff. It's a good idea to try, you know, try to learn that. And as I learn it, I'm going to probably keep coming out with content around it. And who knows, maybe at some point, then people just send everyone to me to uh, learn cloud in it and it won't be an issue, but there's going to be some challenges there. Um, one of which is the metadata. Cloud init needs metadata. It needs, uh, you know, for example, the default username, default password, and you have to have a server to serve that, that cloud init can then catch, pull in, and make the case. It'll also silently fail if it has no way of getting a hold of that said metadata. Now, Proxmox works around this by creating what they call a cloud init drive. And in the cloud init drive, it, um, as far as I know, and I'm gonna you know, paraphrase this here, but it seems to me the way that it's working, and again, it's complex, is uh, yeah, CloudInit, don't worry about looking for a server for this metadata you're, you know, you're looking for. It's right on this drive, just use that. And that way you're not required to spin up a web server just for that one purpose, although you can. I kind of feel like for a home labber, spinning up a web service just for that is kind of a waste of resources. It's probably just better to use a CloudInit drive and with that box being checked, CloudInit will then run. Well, you have to run uh, CloudInit clean to generalize it first, but that plus the existence of the CloudInit drive in the case of Proxmox or whatever, or however your individual platform makes that available, that'll give you the benefit of CloudInit. I see a few comments on this as well. Um, yeah. That the it's documentation, the is, yep. yeah, the machine ID and the um, that the cloud init install in installing Ansible, which that's a very valid way to do this as well. So you can use your yep. cloud init to get your Ansible and then get your Ansible pull set up so it pulls everything down there. Uh, absolutely, yep. that will work. And it does work because that's also how I do it as well, especially yep. on Raspberry Pi. Um, Raspberry Pi, it work cloud init works very well on Raspberry Pi. It, it's actually kind of crazy to me how well it works. It, it's it works really really well and. I just have this CloudInit config that I uh, keep personal and I've only changed like two things like, uh, you know, the default username and then also the command that pulls in Ansible is the only other thing that I've added to it. And whenever I restore an image for Raspberry Pi, like if I download Raspberry Pi OS or Ubuntu for the Pi, I just drop that right into Etsy cloud, cloud.cfg, the one that I curate. And then it just does everything, and then I don't worry about it. I get a message in my phone, machine provisioned. I know it's you know been provisioned. I can log in. Um, I do feel, though, that as complicated as CloudInit can be, it's still fun. Well, maybe not to everyone, but you will get a feeling of satisfaction and also feeling like you have more power because you have more uh, tools at your disposal for getting these images taken care of. But CloudInit also... Uh, is what makes the complexity nowadays of image, you know, creating deployment images for Linux machines about the same complexity as I remember Windows to be back when I used to manage Windows machines. But it's not insurmountable. It's actually probably not as hard as it seems when you learn it. And you'll probably have a mindset of, oh, yeah, that uh, that doesn't seem so bad. But then again, considering some distributions add their own things to it, you might run into some things that are going to take you a minute, like, for example, last weekend, 
I had an issue where every Ubuntu instance I created from a cloud init provisioned image would have zero networking out of the box. No IP address, nothing, literally nothing. And that's when I found the hard way after you know looking through. Again, you guys are getting the benefit, not going through the pain I went through. And there was a file called, uh, well, it's actually in a directory called clean.d inside Etsy cloud. And that directory contains scripts that'll run when you run the command cloud init clean. Cloud init clean, again, is how you generalize it an instance. If you want to utilize cloud init, what that'll do is it'll remove the state of the instance that cloud init has run. So at that point, the next time it boots, CloudNet is going to say, hey, I've never run on this machine, even if it has. It's going to think that it hasn't, and it's going to go ahead and, and do everything it needs to do. So you have to run that command. But when you do so, everything in that, cloud, that excuse me, the clean.d directory will be run as well. Now, that's a pretty cool thing if you think about it, because you could just put some scripts in there if you want some more things to be done to the image. But then what I found out is that Ubuntu had a command to delete your netplan YAML file, just knock it out. And sure enough, every instance I created at CNET plan was empty. And it was hard-coded right in clean.d, right off of Ubuntu server. If this file exists, and the name is, you know, 01, or no, 00 installer.yaml, uh, something like that, it's going to delete it. Now, I think the reason why is because cloud providers generally have their own system for assigning network configuration, and they probably want to avoid a situation where you have a default NetPlan file plus the cloud provider's you know, network configuration on top of that, which could probably cause some interesting things to happen. But you know, again, we run into an issue where CloudInit, uh, as a project, they kind of seem to um, not understand that creating deployment images is an industry-wide thing, cloud or not. Sure, it has a biggest use case in the cloud, but people still provision VMs internally and they want to generalize things that needs to work for them. So I feel like this mistake that's clearing out network config is just not taking into consideration that you know it's used for other things. However, when uh, Tom and I were chatting last night, they must have fixed it because I couldn't reproduce it again. So right now it's working, even if you run uh, cloud in it clean, it works fine. I, I think, how many times do we try that at least twice if not three times last <laughs> night to reproduce that yeah and it was 100 reproducible for me last weekend anytime you run cloud in it clean your network config is gone every single time and now it works so there there's that that's the thing we run into with home lab is that you know we have a process that we've gone through a, a lot and then one day it doesn't work why doesn't it work well there's a bug now and uh and something that's causing it not to work but that's one of the trade-offs that we go through Right. And do take the time to fill out those bug reports because oh, yeah. um, I thought of doing a video on that because I have, well, I'm going to go through my testing process probably in a video soon where I show how I find the bug. Well, the bug, you know, should kind of found me, but I'll show how I produce a lab environment where I can reproduce it. <clears throat> and my goal is to always give the developers the accurate answer. Like this is the system, like here's a clean system these are the steps that reproduce that particular bug uh, that mm -hmm. way you know they understand the scenario we found it in a production scenario is where we found the bug uh, but we're not 100 clear on it yet so i'm actually going to reproduce it in our lab uh, it's some rule creation in pf sense but it's, a, right. it's an edge case but i know enough people probably have this edge case and i'll solve it for them so always think about that when you find these bugs is making sure you uh, file good detailed bug reports that's what gets the developers uh 
you know, they really want to solve the problems and not, not have them just lingering. Yeah. Another thing that um, I guess this is the last thing I'll mention is a consideration because I've already talked about, you know, making, making it the case, possibly if this is what you want, that certain packages are installed, uh, you know, straight out of the gate in the image or template, whatever it is. Um, but there's a, some optional things you can consider. If you decide to do none of what I'm mentioning, that's fine. doesn't matter. It, it just matters how much do you care about some of the particulars. And um, specifically for me, and what I'm talking about here is clearing out things like bash history. So if you have, let's just say, a user you want in your image, you create that user, and then you log in as that user, set up the user and all that, there's bash history now. And do you really want that, you know, every instance to have you know, for that user have uh, bash history that's there from like before you took the image, it just seems kind of weird. So what I do is I just delete the dot bash history file for every user. And then what I'll also do is look for um, any uh, files. So like find, you know, dash type F, you want to look for files in the var log directory and just pipe that into truncate that dash S zero, be careful. And that'll empty out all the logs because in my opinion, what you don't want is logs from the process of creating the image because that was from before. You want things to pretty much start out as a clean slate. So emptying out log files is not outside the norm. You probably don't want to delete log files because I have seen some services out there strangely won't like create their log file if it's absent, which is, is kind of rare. Most will, but then some won't, which is the reason why I recommend truncate. Uh, with a size of zero, because at least then you're not going to run into a situation where you need logs from a service just to find that it hasn't ever been logging because the file isn't there and it doesn't want to create it. So again, rare, but it happens. Another thing you might want to do is go into your distribution's uh, package cache locally. So I think it's like varlib, dpkg, or something like that off the top of my head in Debian and Ubuntu. So anytime you run like, you know, apt install, just upgrade, it's going to download the Debian or Deb packages into that directory. You could run sudo apt clean to make sure that those get wiped out. There's just It's just a waste of space. The image is going to be bigger, and you probably don't want that to be the case. Just, just wipe that out. You can always download everything later. So that's probably another thing you might want to clear. And then finally, another tool I want to make everyone aware of is PyShrink, which I just love. And this is specific to people that might want to create a deployment image for Raspberry Pi. And um, what this will do, let's just say, for example, and this has happened to me, I had a 128 gig SD card for my uh, Kubernetes controller. And when I ran the DD command to back it up, I also had a 120 gigabyte image file. Now, forget the fact that probably two or three gigs were being used most, but DD is DD. It's going to grab the entire thing. What PyShrink will do is it'll actually truncate the unused space that's in the image, knocking it down to a ridiculously small size. But what it'll also do is automatically trigger the service that runs to check that the uh, installed image is taking up the entirety of the hard drive. So that way you don't have a situation where you have a 128 gigabyte SD card, but like three gigabytes maximum usable space. Well, you're missing out on the majority of your space there. So what PyShrink will do is set it up that when it first boots, however much free space you should have, it's going to expand the boundaries of the restored image to that so you can uh, take advantage of that. So it's been an indispensable tool for me, especially as I back up my um, SD cards. 
And sure, you could just gzip your image and that'll knock down the size too, but it's still going to take a long time to restore. May as well just, just use PyShrink. I think it's uh, a good tool and it's specific for Raspberry Pi purposes. Yeah. Uh, someone mentioned, and I pulled the website up because it actually looks cool. So dietpi.com, and it's uh, actually supports quite a few different uh, single board computers. It's a very minimalized install of highly optimized, minimal install of Debian OS. So that's actually rather clever. So if you're looking for something else, uh, thank you yep. for that suggestion there. Um, that was definitely great. I'm curious if the one I used to use is even still around. I haven't heard of anyone say it in a long time. Um, I, I doubt it. I used to use something called, uh, if I'm even saying this right, Minibian, like um, M-I-N-I-B-I-A-N. Um, I'm not even sure. I'm not. This isn't a recommendation because it, it's been a long time, but that used to be my go-to. Nowadays, I just do things the hard way. I just have Ansible remove everything that shouldn't be there. So, you know, if, regardless of what it starts out as, it's going to become what I want. But there is definitely a oh, use. Jay froze for a time. second there. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Jay's. You froze for a second there, but I already can finish your sentence. Jay does use Ansible very well. He's got a whole video on that. I'm using Ansible poll and then customizing it, including not just installing the things you need, but removing the extra things you don't. So kind of minimizing the install a bit. Yep, that, that's exactly right. So I guess all I'm saying is I'm not the use case for it. But then again, I, I think there is a valid use case for something like that. And absolutely something that uh, you might want to look into as an option. And And if you're lazy like me, and I'll reiterate how I, a lot of what I do, I have an Ubuntu server 20 and a server 20, uh, 22 and whatever the subversion is the, those are both running with the name template sitting in my stack of all my other hypervisors that I have running. I have unattended upgrades running. So they're always pulling whenever there's a cycle that goes through of whatever updates are needed. And it just loads because it's a template that way, anytime this week, next week, three weeks from now, when I go, Hey, I have this idea. I want to load Portainer. I go grab that template and maybe, uh, you know, I'll do one more update, but it's usually already up to date just in case. Then I'll stop that template, shut it down, fork it and let it live again. And then take that fork and build my idea, play with whatever I want to play with. Uh, and it's always just running it up to date. It, for yep. me, and this is simplicity for people running, uh, if you want to run the whole lab, all the different more complicated ways we talked about are great. Now, if you're running a large scale dev team and things like that, yeah, you're going to want to have automation. There's even Packer. There's all kinds of different methodologies for having, you know, ready images made. But you can also just leave one running with unattended upgrades. And because it's idling, it's not doing much. It doesn't take up much CPU power. It doesn't need to have even that many cores. You can assign it like one core and a gig of RAM right. is usually enough. It just can sit in the background doing its thing, pulling those updates. And then you just clone with your hypervisor, whether that's Proxmox or XCPNG, doesn't matter. They both have the same option. You can then do a full clone or a linked clone, depending on how you want to do that. And then you have a ready template all the time. Because I like the things in my template. We, one, not just having the packages up to date, but two, we have a common user at my office that we have on there um, that the employees log in as it, it's just a lab user and it's just already set up on those templates. Now, if I'm doing something for production, I usually don't pull from those templates. Like if I decided I'm going to do a new install of something production, I generally like to start from 
like a new install scratch. I'll grab the latest ISO of the distribution. And then I have my customizations I'll put on from that. I kind of like going through that raw install process. I It just kind of makes me feel more engaged and involved. Um, we don't replace production servers very often. That's something, right. it's, it's kind of like a one-off rare thing. So I like to just go through the process again on there. So there's a couple different methodologies, whichever one really you're comfortable with on there. As long as you're doing some of the important things. And one of the things like Jay said, uh, and we, yeah, I threw that little a couple of commands there, resetting SSH host keys, resetting the machine ID, or as someone noted, putting a net plan to you make sure you're not pulling it. So you get a different MAC address presented for a DHC client because you don't want to have the same MAC address as your template. That would cause drama. Uh, make sure you've got those bases yeah. covered because those basics will um, cause you some headaches when you have your template still running and all of a sudden the other thing looks just like it. <laughs> And the and then the the other thing I'll mention is probably the last thing for today for me is um, what do you do after? I, I have a rule um, at my company. I know it's just me, but we'll just we'll just, we'll just pretend I have a whole team of people. I will eventually, but <laughs> um, but I also had this rule when I managed people before I went on my own that nothing is allowed to be ac accessible from the public internet unless it absolutely has to be. Well, that's pretty obvious. We've said that a million times, but also goes through a security check. So. Before I allow anything that is supposed to be accessible from the public internet to be accessible, then I'm going to make sure everything is updated. You know, I understand what ports are listening, should they be listening, and I just check everything. And then I will allow it to be publicly accessible. But like it's even to the point where if I'm working with someone else, which is generally going to be probably remote, and maybe, you know, we're tag teaming an instance or something, I might say, well, what's your IP address? And I'll whitelist their ability to get in. I still won't make it accessible from any IP regardless until I know that um, it has, you know, security standards in place. Obviously, you, you don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because it, there's no end to it, but you definitely want to check some boxes, updating being the obvious one. Closing ports should also be obvious, but then also just kind of take a look at it, make sure that everything um, checks out. And then if you need to make it public, pub, excuse me, publicly available, you can. But then again, if you could get away with nothing being publicly available, even better. Yeah. Uh, someone else threw in the comments here, cloud init uh, space clean, uh, tac tac machine dash ID dash SL. Yeah, I, have, I tried that last week and I'm trying to remember what happened because it didn't work. But okay. I don't know why. I don't remember why. And um, my under, and this is another issue about the documentation. My understanding is, and maybe this is wrong, is that cloud init clean will clean everything. But if you add an option, it's going to just go after that one thing. Cause there's also dash dash logs as well. So you could wipe out the logs by adding that as an option to, um, cloud init clean. But I'm gonna have to look into that to be sure okay. that clean is inclusive, um, which I thought it was, but again, maybe I'm wrong here. And, but if there is something that you want to clean in particular, then that's one way to do it. But again, I just wish I remembered what went wrong when I tried that. I, I spent all day figuring this out last weekend, so I probably am missing some details. So apologies okay. for that. More more testing needed on that. So uh, oh, yeah. we look forward to hearing some feedback from any of you that have that. And thank you, Justin, for that suggestion on there. Um, I seen Justin also mentioned he used Arch. Uh, were you trying that cloud and it clean on an Arch machine or an Ubuntu machine? Jason, Jay was doing them all on Ubuntu. So, yep, yep. I, I haven't run Arch on servers in a while. So, right now is just Ubuntu. And I was 
also running into Ubuntuisms that were, again, specific to that distribution, not in the CloudInit documentation. So that was further uh, complicating things, too. Uh, Justin says he was using Arch. So uh, there goes some more testing for you, Jay. There, there's the next video Jay can work on, CloudInit on each different distribution and why it's not the same. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and you know, the, now that Arch was mentioned, I I feel like there's just this stigma around rolling uh, distributions that I don't think is fair. I would absolutely run a server on Arch, no question about it. Sure, you're going to have a little bit more work sometimes, but the whole idea of Arch is to install as few packages as possible to you know serve your goal. So as long as you follow that, and you don't have like you know ten thousand things installed, especially a bunch of things from the AUR, and it's just the things you absolutely need especially considering you could literally just install something on your Arch server just to run a container and everything runs in containers and you don't even have any extra packages beyond that. You could absolutely have a stable rolling distribution and then benefit from literally never having to reinstall everything the next time a new Ubuntu release comes out. But again, everyone makes the assumption that rolling is bad for stability. No, just means you are in charge of the stability. If you're up to that, then you should absolutely do it because you are benefiting from not having to reinstall. And that's why we also see CentOS, uh, CentOS Stream, Amazon Linux is you know semi-rolling. So it, it's taken off and I think it's gonna be very common. But then again, if you want something simple, Debian, Ubuntu, um, there's Fedora server, there's a number of others that might just be uh, a little bit less chaotic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, this was definitely a fun talk, um, and we sent some homework for a few people, so they got a few oh, yeah. different things they can try, <laughs> and so do we. So I think there's there's going to be a lot a lot of things in here. So I haven't done a video at all on Cloud and Next CPNG, and it's been kind of my to list because to kind of talk about that, I just don't use it, uh, but I want to. And so mm -hmm. I've got a kind of a goal set for that. And there's been some discussion in the XCPNG forums on CloudNet. So uh, that'll be my source materials for it. But thank you, everyone, for joining us. And we look forward to hearing from you. We want to do another Q&A episode. Um, we thinking we're doing, me and Jay, are we going to do an episode? We didn't talk about this before on that between Christmas and New Year's. Is it, was there any plans or? I don't, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to be available. I mean, things are a little up in the air because there may or may not be a, a blizzard coming. Yeah. Um, if I knew for a fact it was coming, I'd say, yes, I'm available because I'd have nothing else to do. But I think it's probably safe to call it like uh, next week probably uh, will be a break. Okay, we might be a break next week. Just let everyone know because that means we won't be back till after the first of the year. But we look forward to hearing from all of you. And uh, thank you for all of the supporters of the channel. Leave your comments down below or hit us up on the socials. Thank you very much. Take care.